Welcome to The Christian Atheist, where faith and reason fuse in the Incarnation. Episode number 91, Paradise Lost, Book 3, Divine Superlatives. I believe in Christianity as I believe that the sun has risen, not only because I see it, but because by it I see everything else. These words from C.S. Lewis's essay, Is Theology Poetry?, have as a central metaphor the superlative, God is light, from the epistle of 1 John. This superlative is also the central metaphor of Milton's third book of Paradise Lost, which opens with these words, Hail, holy light, offspring of heaven firstborn, or of the eternal co-eternal beam, may I express the unblamed, since God is light? Before the sun, before the heavens, thou wert. I would like to suggest in what follows, that when we use metaphorical language in relation to God, especially superlatives, metaphor itself is stretched to the breaking point and inverts on itself. Already by line 9 of Book 3, Milton has invoked two superlatives for God. The first is explicit, God is light, and the second is implied, before the sun, before the heavens thou wert. The reference here is to Exodus 3.14, where God first reveals his name to Moses, Yahweh, or I am. Putting it in the superlative, we would say that God is being itself. Milton might seem to be the source for Lewis's sentiment with which we began this podcast when he, the blind poet, says this, Ever during dark surrounds me, and for the book of knowledge fair, presented with a universal blank of nature's work, expunged, and wisdom at one entrance quite shut out, so much the rather thou, celestial light, shine inward, and the mind through all her powers irradiate. There plant eyes, all mist from thence purge and disperse, that I may see and tell of things invisible to mortal sight. The Holy Spirit, as muse, brings light and knowledge through inspiration, and though temporal darkness has blinded Milton to the world about him, God, as light, infuses the greater clarity of spiritual truth to the poet. Thus, our first glimpse of God in Paradise Lost is suffused with light, the divine light that constitutes the heavenly realm, here in Book 3, and yields us one more, perhaps surprising superlative, the notion of begetting. Quote, On his right, the radiant image of his glory sat, his only Son. On earth he first beheld our two first parents, yet the only two of mankind, in the happy garden placed, reaping immortal fruits of joy and love, uninterrupted joy, unrivaled love in blissful solitude. The contrast here is drawn between the incestuous and vulgar substantive unity of evil of sin springing from Satan's head, together breeding death from chaos and suffering in darkness. 
and the pure and eternal begetting of plurality in the Godhead, in the celestial light. And this begetting is figured again in the one flesh of Adam and Eve as the begetters of mankind. I must confess that this vision of the marital union as the reflection of the eternal begetting of God's Son is part of the irresistible magic of Milton's poem for me. It has given voice to the beauty and wonder I have experienced being married to Jenny. Of that fundamental incarnation in the body of another, the form of the ideal union of God and man in Christ, reflecting the even higher union of the persons of the Godhead. This is why each episode of the Christian Atheist begins with declaring the fusion of faith and reason in the Incarnation. We find more superlatives in this passage, in which God discusses humanity's fall. They trespass, authors to themselves in all, both what they judge and what they choose, for so I formed them free, and free they must remain till they enthrall themselves. I else must change their nature and revoke the high decree unchangeable, eternal, which ordained their freedom. They themselves ordained their fall. The first sort, that is the angels, by their own suggestion fell, self-tempted, self-depraved. Man falls, deceived by the other first. Man therefore shall find grace, the other none. In mercy and justice both, through heaven and earth, so shall my glory excel. But mercy, first and last, shall brightest shine. Depending on how we count, how we divide the language here, we have at least two, possibly three, superlatives. If we count grace separately, we will have three with mercy and justice, though perhaps grace and mercy conflate and find their balance in justice. In any case, we will say that God is just, and that God is grace or mercy. But it is the balance of grace-mercy with justice that allows mercy to brightest shine to his glory. For it is freely given, without necessity, whereas justice is demanded by his very nature. The reason, of course, why mercy has the highest position here is because of its connection to our next divine superlative, which follows quickly on the others in the order of the poem, and couched still in the metaphor of light. In the blessed spirit's elect sense of new joy ineffable diffused. Beyond compare, the Son of God was seen most glorious. In him, all his Father shone substantially expressed, and in his face divine compassion visibly appeared, love without end, and without measure, grace. Once again in the words of the beloved Apostle, God is love. It is this superlative which triumphant reigns in the divine character, as the divine begetting, is the very relation of person to person within the Godhead. This divine relation of love flows out from God in freedom in the creative act, as we saw above, 
endowing his creatures with the freedom of will to love, to express in reciprocity with his creator the divine nature within him. Yet man's willful fall breaks that free expression of love. Quote, Yet all is not done. Man disobeying, disloyal, breaks his fealty and sins against the high supremacy of heaven, affecting Godhead. And so losing all, to expiate his treason hath not left but to destruction. He, with his whole posterity, must die. Divine justice, God's very being, requires the penalty. God does not choose justice. He is justice, and therefore the penalty must be applied, the scales righted. In Milton's words, die he or justice must. And, of course, it is in fact justice who, in the person of the incarnate Savior, in whom mercy and love are begotten of the Father, quote, in whom the fullness dwells of love divine, dies, and in dying satisfies justice, yet lives. For God is also life, as the Son here says to the Father, Thou hast given me to possess life in myself forever, by thee I live. It is through the Incarnation, God himself taking the form of his creation, that divine love redeems forever they who through their own free will condemn themselves to death's foul fate. Quote, so man, as is most just, shall satisfy for man, be judged, and die, and dying, rise, and rising with him raise his brethren, ransomed with his own dear life. So heavenly love, shall outdo hellish hate. There is, however, one final superlative, one familiar to our listeners, and the one I think fundamental to God's being, from which all other superlatives flow. Speaking to his Son, God says this, Because thou hast been found by merit, more than birthright, Son of God, found worthiest to be so, by being good. Therefore thy humiliation shall exalt with thee thy manhood also to this throne. Here shalt thou sit incarnate. Here shalt reign both God and man, son both of God and man, anointed universal king. It is for goodness' sake that God exalts the Son as sovereign over all heaven and earth. For God is goodness. God is value itself. As we see in this brilliant portrait of the divine character, God's goodness is complex, not simple. God is one, but his unity is structured, hierarchical which is what the Trinitarian doctrine suggests. Likewise, goodness and all the divine superlatives work together to form the whole, each part in its proper place and performing its proper function. 
As finite beings, we understand only the limited parts that we can gather of truth and reality. We must never allow our partial understanding of the parts to deceive us into thinking we can grasp the whole. Here at The Christian Atheist, we have repeatedly made the claim that ethics is a balancing act, that acting on only one of the aspects of virtue without relating it to the whole hierarchy of goodness becomes, eventually, a vice. This is the rule of both Aristotelian and Christian ethics. Most of the power of atheist arguments rests on this point of exalting the part to the position of the whole. How can God be love when he allows children to suffer and die? I do not claim to be able to answer this question to my own satisfaction, let alone that of others. But surely we can find sufficient evidence and reason, as related here, to accept God's goodness as something beyond our grasp, as infinitely higher than our limited comprehension. When we view the rigid price of divine justice being paid on humanity's behalf by God's love freely given in the death of his only begotten Son, when the whole which knows and which is the proper relation of all parts in the hierarchy of value sacrifices itself on behalf of its ignorant, limited, and sinful parts, who are the parts to question the infinite wisdom of the whole? These divine superlatives, we might say, are metaphors we use to describe God. However, I think that is wrong. It is an inversion of what is actually the case. It is what we experience, our finite understanding of this world that we take as the whole of reality, when it is but a part, what C.S. Lewis calls the shadowlands, that are the true metaphors. Reality is God himself. Our ignorant, partial, and limited understanding of love, light, being, grace. All of these are but shadows, metaphors of that one truly substantial and objective reality, God. One final lesson to draw from this third book. After the vignette in heaven, Milton returns us to Satan, who visits the sun. Quote, There lands the fiend, a spot which perhaps astronomer in the sun's lucent orb through his glazed optic tube yet never saw. It is our fundamental faith that holds that God's goodness is the fundamental reality, and evil is but the spot of shadow that dims the light. When Satan rebelled against the fundamental being of light, it was to infect us with viral darkness and chaos, to spread his pathogen into God's good creation. Evil does not win. It spreads, and it kills its hosts, and it brings darkness. We cling in faith to God's goodness. For he is love. He is life. He is grace and mercy. He is justice. He is begetting father of God and man. 
He is the eternal light by which we know, believe, understand, and, yes, see his goodness. Evil is the mere shadow of finitude. Let us walk in the light as he is light. I am a Christian with the searching and skeptical mind of an atheist. I don't want to believe anything that isn't true. I know both sides of the looking glass and I know them with open eyes. I choose Christ's side. I invite you to join me from wherever you stand before the looking glass. That's this week's episode. Thanks for listening. And remember, you can have your religious cake and eat it too. You can have reason, respect for science, a 21st century worldview, and be a Christian.